we all know what happened 2007, 2008, but that's not what brought the downfall to this. The downfall was that we had zero marketing. We had zero push for this whole project that we were working on. We had like a hundred off. No, it wasn't that many. It was like 70 offices that we needed to rent out and we could never get it more than about 10% to 15% occupied. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And that mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor community. In the community, you get access to our global asset allocation strategies and stock portfolios, our investment research, weekly live sessions, and the risk reduction lessons I've learned from more than 500 guests. Just go to myworstinvestmentever.com to learn more. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Andrew Howe. Andrew, are you ready to join the mission? Let's do it. I'm excited. All right. <laughs> well, as I said to you before we turn on the recorder, is... I'll never forget your name. What a great name. That's right. That's right. You're, I said the same thing to you, that you're yep. well-named. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. So let me introduce you to the audience. Andrew L. Howell is a co-founder of the Salt Lake City firm York Howell, which is known as one of Utah's fastest-growing companies. Andrew has built a successful practice throughout the United States with respect to estate planning, asset protection planning, probate, and estate administration, charitable giving, sophisticated business structuring and transactions, and tax planning. He is most passionate about the family legacy planning that he assists his clients with, and he has a specific focus on ultra high net worth families and business owners. He's also the co-author of the book, Entrusted, Building a Legacy That Lasts, which features seven core disciplines of successful wealth transfer of high net worth families going back hundreds of years. He is also the co-author of a follow-up book called Riveted, 44 Values That Change the World. My goodness, Andrew, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you bring to this wonderful world. Well, what I, what I think I bring is more heart in estate planning than what I see from my colleagues. Let me explain. And it probably comes, I probably need to explain a little bit back, go back a little bit history-wise within my family. My grandfather was a very, very important person in my life. Very, very successful attorney of his own. He was a, a Harvard Law grad, did estate planning work. But you know, his clientele included people like the Browning family, just these enormous, huge families that he worked with. And my parents were divorced when I was fairly young and my grandpa was really active in my life and didn't let me sit idle. Okay. And that's, look, I, I didn't like him at the time for that. I mean, at 12 years old, I was at his office being a gopher. Right. And, and I wanted to be out riding bikes with my friends and, you know, I, I hated it. I hated, I did. I really despised him for it. And I couldn't be happier right now that he made me do stuff like that. But he was also very, good about including me. And I remember that this one time I was at his office and again, I was probably 12, 13, 14, somewhere in that ballpark. 
and this new client or not a new client, but an existing client of his was coming in. And he's a, he was a very wealthy man here in Utah. He's since passed away, but he owned Sinclair oil and a couple of hotels here. He's a gentleman by the name of Earl holding and Earl was a really nice man. And he came into my grandpa's office for a checkup meeting, kind of like an annual estate planning meeting, if you will. And I'll have clients come in and we'll have these annual checkups and they'll tell me about, you know, a new rental property they purchased or or vacation property in Florida, something like this. Well, Earl came in and was talking to my grandpa about this new four miles of oceanfront that he had purchased in Santa Barbara, California. And I mean, just this tremendous asset, right? And I just watched these two gentlemen have this conversation about the impact that this asset was going to have in the family. I don't remember my grandpa asking how much the asset was even worth. It was, Earl, what do you want to do with this? Where Where is this going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now in your family dynamics? And I just thought that was really, and I thought that's how everybody practiced law. So when I got out of law school, I always knew I wanted to do estate and tax work. So I didn't do moot court. I didn't do the bar journal, any of those kind of things. It was a waste of time, at least in my mind. I did the international taxation classes and and so forth. But when I got out of law school, I could have worked with my grandpa, but I didn't like the nepotism, the feel of that. And it happens a lot within law firms, right? It's McAllister, 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 right? But I wanted to kind of do my own thing. And and so I joined a large law firm here in in Salt Lake. They're actually now uh, part of the largest law firm in the world. It's Denton's who has purchased them recently. But I was really surprised as I got into that firm, how they all did estate planning. It was a, it was a trust mill, we call them, right? Your client calls you or you get a referral into somebody. Before you meet with that client, you ask them for a whole bunch of information. Basically, what is their net worth and how many kids do they have, two and a half kids and a dog. And then you're going to tell them what they need to do. And I just thought that was totally bass backwards, right? I watched first, why? Why are we doing what we're doing? What is the impact it's going to make? And then let's choose the appropriate tools to get there. So what I think is unique in terms of how we practice is we really put the why before the what. I spend tremendous amounts of time in the investment in the relationship. I mean, one of the things that I love about what I do in terms of estate planning is really two things. Number one is I love attorney jokes, right? Because I feel like they're well-earned, just hopefully not by me. Hopefully my, my clients are sleeping better at night. I'm not suing them, making their life worse. And so, look, they're very well-earned. But I also love long-term relationships. And estate planning is one of these things that's never done might be up to date, but it could be out of date tomorrow. And it's not like I handle a litigation matter for you and the lawsuit's over and we don't ever talk again. And it's easier for people to come back to me and make changes to their estate planning. And I I take that really seriously. And so I want that, that strong investment into who they are, who their kids are, who the, you know, their intended beneficiaries are going to be, but also who, who are they as a family, right? You asked me what, what makes me unique. Well, that's what I would ask a client. What makes you unique as a family? And families haven't really spent a lot of time in that, if you think about it. Right? They don't, that's our first principle in entrusted, right? That entrusted families, we call these people who have successfully navigated this wealth transfer from one generation to the next, right? Without creating 
trust fund babies, what we call trustafarians, right? One of the things that all of these families have in common is they know who they are and what they believe. And so few families can articulate that. And remember, when I'm talking family here, that could meet a whole bunch of different dynamics from the standard husband and wife, two and a half kids, to blended families, to look, you're single, but you still want to have an impact in what happens with the wealth that you have accumulated. So that's where I think we bring a much different angle to estate planning is really focusing on the family and their values and making sure that whatever plan is put in place takes that at heart. Interesting. I You reminded me of in the last years of my father's life, he and I, I went back to America and was with my mom and dad and my dad and I were in the car driving and I wouldn't say that our family was a rich family, you know, at all. They did okay, but, and all the kids were completely independent, you know, so we weren't thinking about anything coming from our parents. But my father said, I asked him, what is the thing you're most proud about in your life? And he said that I build a trusting family. And wow, you know, like that hit me, like that would just really hit me because then I never really thought about it, Andrew, when I spent most of my life, you know, my mom and dad treated me very well. They, they weren't abusive in any way. They weren't demanding, you know, they let me experience life, but there were times that there were, you know, non-negotiables, like when I got involved with drugs and alcohol and started really crashing, that they really stood up and said, you've got to deal with this. But I just think that is something that is powerful. So trust trusting and all that. And I think about also how money can destroy families. And part of the structures of what you do tries maybe hopefully to prevent a collapsing in of a black into a black hole for a family that they never come out of. We have a saying in the estate planning world that, that you never truly know a person till you share an inheritance with them. Right. And I I have seen the best families go through horrible fights. And I have seen I have seen families that I thought for sure were going to fight, just sell through it just without any kind of problems at all. And and you never know what's going to happen. But, you know, I, I I don't I'll disagree with you on something you said, which is that I don't think it's money that destroys families. Right. Money's not good or bad. It just is. I mean, it can be used for good or bad, just like anything else. In fact, in our book, we equate it to, to dynamite. Right? Dynamite can be used to make roads and build tunnels, or it could be used to kill people. And it's just the like the question with money and dynamite is how much impact is it ultimately going to make? And it's going to make an impact. So I think unharnessed wealth and transfers or undirected wealth and transfers that definitely can cause problems. I mean, what money will do is it will accentuate either your good or your bad qualities. If you're a philanthropic person, let's say altruistic, generosity is one of your core values, and you get a bunch more money, well, you're probably going to give more to charity. If you, though, have a situation like in early on in your life where you have a drug dependency problem or an alcohol dependency problem, and you get a bunch of money, well, what's that going to do? It's going to exacerbate that problem, right? So it's it's how that money is viewed and really putting, instead of the money being the focus, you make the family the focus, right? The second principle we talk about is that entrusted families 
prepare the next generation for the wealth. They don't just prepare the wealth for the next generation. And somewhere along the lines that has all gotten flipped, right? A trust, right? The name of trust used to be sort of, you know, who was being entrusted, right? Who were we putting it in trust for? And now all it boils down to is what is your balance sheet? How much money do you have in the bank? And I don't know where that happened, but somewhere in the last 100, 120 years, it all got flipped on us. And I think that with what's going to be happening here in the near future, there's going to be what we call a $50 trillion tsunami. $50 trillion are going to change hands from one generation to the next over the next 40 years. And if that, I mean, that's the largest wealth transfer in human history. And if that is unharnessed, like most estate plans are, even if somebody has one, right? Most people don't. 70% of the population never wants to speak to a bloodsucker like me about death and taxes, so they have a tendency to put it off. But even in the ones that I do see, there isn't any kind of mention of any of these things. It says, when I die, it goes to my spouse. When my spouse dies, it goes equally to our kids. And when they're 25 years old, they get it all. Well, it's completely unharnessed. And then they lose it in a divorce. They spend it, whatever. So it's putting more thought right? Really thinking of yourself as a steward over the assets, right? We can't take them with us. And how are we going to make sure that the next generation who are going to be the stewards are equipped to be able to handle it? Now, I'm going to have links in the show notes uh, to your books and your firm and stuff. But what would be, what I want to just ask one last question in this intro section really is about, you know, what's something that people can take away from, you know, I'm thinking about my audience is maybe 50% in the U.S., 50% international. And for people as they look at, you know, the end of their life, estate planning, all that different stuff, what would be something that you would recommend or that, that you've learned, like one or two lessons that you've learned that I know you've broken down in your books and you go through in your, probably in your website and stuff, but maybe you can share that and then share where's the best place for people who think I need more of this should go. Well, so I don't think the ideals that we talk about in the book are, are border specific, right? I don't think that just because you live in, in Thailand or, or Switzerland or, or wherever China, I, I don't think it matters. I think we all are concerned about about our kids, right? I would love to be able to look at my kids at my deathbed and think two things equally. That number one, I can leave them everything and they're so fabulously responsible that they'd be able to manage it perfectly well and do a better job than I can. But I'd also love to look at my kids and think equally, I don't have to give you anything because you can make it on your own. My kids are not there yet, right? So in terms of some things to to think about, I think the book is a great resource because it talks about, it really does lay out clear principles that I, again, do not think are dependent upon U.S. law or whatever. It's a deeper thinking into the family dynamic. Uh, like as an example, as soon as we wrote and trusted this book that kind of talked about all these great ideals, people, they kind of liked it, which was weird for me. I thought two people were going to read it. My mom maybe. And then my high school English teacher, just because she wouldn't believe that I ever wrote a book, but we have but the same, it actually same kinda, experience, <laughs> but it kind of had a good, a good welcome. And we still sell a lot of them, which is again, surprising to me, but people are kind of left, honestly, after reading that book going, 
well, that's great. Now what, right? Where's the call to action? So we have a whole game that we've developed called rivets. The reason we use these word rivets and so forth is because in our book, Entrusted, we analogize sort of bridging the gap from one generation to the next. And bridges are held together with rivets. And these rivets are the values that, that hold the family together, right? And we feel there's these 44 positive values that really are embraced. And we develop this whole, it's really a card trading game where if you play it as a family, every member of the family winds up with their five core values. And you, you might say, well, five values out of 44, everybody's going to have the same. And no, there's 15 million different combinations of that. So, and what's, what's nice about that is it starts the family discussion and that idea of the first principle being families know who they are and who, and what they believe. Well, if I'm sitting down and I'm playing this game with my, my family, and like one of my core values is, is honesty. Okay. And I know that sounds really strange coming from a lawyer, but it's true. And the reason for that is early on in my life, there was a person in our family that was really dishonest with us. And it caused a lot of problems that didn't have to happen. And I now can sit down, play this game with my family and be able to say, look, this is why honesty is so important to me. And my family is learning family lore. They're also understanding about me and my life experience. It's not me being preachy, right? I'm not saying, you know, hey, Thomas, who's my oldest, you were so dishonest last week and he shuts off listening. I'm telling him the story is why that's important. And then you think about that with every member of the family. And then as a family, as a whole, you create those values. So I, I think that it's a great resource for families to really start talking deeper about what their ultimate goal is with all this estate planning. Rather than going into a lawyer's office like mine and having that lawyer tell you what you are going to do. And that's what most of the time happens. Well, that's a lot of value there. And I think a lot of people kind of, they, <laughs> well, you want they, yeah, they, <laughs> they kind of expect to just go into a lawyer's office and they're going to tell them what to do. And this is, sounds like you're about self-discovery. And I could imagine if you were around the table and everybody was identifying their core values and, you know, grandpa says, honesty and you know someone else says something else as a core value and then you realize okay three people at this table have honesty and that's not even on my core values huh interesting what are my core values and how how did i form them and are they you know well and you can you can play it in the reverse right you can play it with your family and like i can sit down with my wife and i can say candace these are the five core values that i see in you this is what i see in you right and they're going to be different than hers. And it's a such a powerful conversation to have. And then we'll play this. And we have in many, many situations in the corporate setting, right? I've played this with my team. I know what my paralegals and my administrative assistants, I know what their core values are. And so when I'm trying to divide up work, let's say I have a presentation that I need to do. And one of my assistants is far more artistic than another one. Well, I'll probably help them or have them help me design it, right? Right. It's a kind of a personality test, if you will. But yeah, it's 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 a fun thing that we're that we're working on. Well, it's great learning about what you're doing. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Okay. 
So this, I think, has a couple lessons you can learn from, and I certainly have learned from it. But I love the quote that you had said before, that a smart man learns from other people's mistakes. So I love that quote. I'm going to steal it. So backstory on this is it involves family members. Okay. One pretty close family member. Other is a second cousin. And the second cousin is older and I'd grown up admired by, I thought a lot of him, very smart guy, He'd gone to Stanford Law and seemed to be successful. So in kind of the 2005, 2006 timeframe, when real estate is going gangbusters, right? Everybody's making money hand over fist. I decided that rather than sticking it out or just, or not, I shouldn't say sticking it out, but sticking to what I'm good at, which is as a state planning lawyer, I'm going to dip my foot into the real estate game. I don't have anything against real estate, right? I, I want to make it really clear, you guys, that I'm not a financial advisor. And if I give you investment advice, you do the exact opposite of what I tell you, and you'll probably make a bunch of money. But I decided to get involved in this because this second cousin of mine came and he said, Andrew, there's a building that is being built here locally here in Salt Lake. And I have the right to the bottom floor of this, this building. And why don't you and then this other family, a member of mine, come in with us. And what we'll do is we'll turn this, it was a large space, into one of those office sharing arrangements, right? Where you can have an office and then you all share a conference room and there's a receptionist and you have all your own phone lines. It's kind of this phantom office still. And so we did it. And we got a conventional loan through a bank that was then tapped on top of it with an SBA loan. <laughs> Taught me a whole nother whole scenario about, you know, small business administration. It sounds so, you know, non-threatening. The SBA is the treasury. Okay. It's a big gorilla. And so I, I learned my lesson the hard way on that one. Government, but we took out to help. <laughs> we took out a uh, I think it was a $1.7 million loan to do some of the property purchase with anyway, it gets complicated there, but I was on the hook in every sense of the degree, personally guaranteed to the SBA, to, you name it. I was, I'm on the hook as are my two other partners. Now they knew I was busy, right? And the office solving everybody's problems, right? That kind of a deal. And that I'm not going to be actively involved in running this business because it was a business in addition to being a real estate ownership, right? You're you're making money from running out the space and you're doing all this kind of stuff. But I wasn't going to be involved. And I made it, I made it very clear. And I was expecting them to do what they had said, which is they would run the business. Okay. Again, a lot of you can probably see red flags coming along here. Well, we all know what happened 2007, 2008, but that's not what brought the downfall to this. The downfall was that we had zero marketing. We had zero push for this whole project that we were working on. We had like 100 off. No, it wasn't that many. It was like 70 offices that we needed to rent out. And we could never get it more than about 10% to 15% occupied. And we'd have these meetings on a monthly basis and it would just be hemorrhaging money. And you know, I even started renting an office there, even though I didn't need it, just to create an additional thousand dollars of of income every month going into the company. So every month I'm draining a thousand dollars out and I ride it, we ride it, ride it, whatever. Finally, 
my two partners throw up their hands and they say, well, we can't cough up anymore. So if we're going to keep this thing going, Andrew, you need to cover it or we're just, we're just going to throw our hands up. And I said, what do you mean throw your hands up? Come to find out this second cousin of mine who I thought was so financially successful doesn't own anything, right? He's in debt up to his eyeballs and he doesn't have any assets. And so he's basically saying, I'm going to declare bankruptcy and, you know, walk away from this thing. My other partner, again, another family member who's closer than the second cousin, basically did the same thing, threw up his hands and said, I don't, you know, they can come after me for whatever we, what they want, but I don't have that. I don't have 1.7 million to come after him. So I'm left holding the bag and the whole thing collapses. It all goes down. The bank repossesses, whatever. And again, this is all happening 2008. And so everything's happening for everybody, which maybe was a blessing in some ways. It kind of gave me some time to circle the wagons. And, and I started in on this endeavor with the SBA. I mean, first of all, I went through an entire loss of a relationship. That second cousin of mine, he and I don't talk any longer and probably never will. We will have some words if we ever do, because we come to find out he was really dishonest about a couple of things. It caused issues with the other family member of mine, although not quite as much, but it caused a tremendous amount of sleepless nights. I mean, I I was up for months and months and months going, how am I going to come up with $1.7 million? I'm seeing you know, all the equity in my home being sucked away. I'm seeing my retirement accounts being sucked away. I'm getting these letters from, again, the treasury, right? The SBA is the treasury. And they're, they're saying, look, we don't, we don't have to take you to court. We'll just take all the money in your bank accounts. That's all we'll do. And you said, okay, well, well, how do I deal with this? And I had never, even though I'm a tax attorney, ever had to work with the SBA or the treasury on an offer in compromise. Right, that's where you go and you say, I can't pay 1.7 million. What will you take? And so it was trial by fire. I didn't have any money to pay my own lawyer to do it. Right. <laughs> See all my money go out the door. And so I took it on my myself to, to negotiate that. Now, I'm happy to say that I was able to negotiate it to $70,000. I mean, I didn't have to pay 1.7. I was able to dramatically cut that down. Again, it was the times back then, 2008, everybody was trying to work out with the SBA and the SBA was happy to get whatever they could. Nowadays, it's not quite so easy to get something like that in terms of a return, but that's what I was able to do. And I had to get $70,000. I had to sell a rental property that we had at the time in order to come up with that $70,000. And that rental property nowadays would be worth twice what it was at that point in time. So it was a, a big, big, I mean, I, I wound up losing probably total because we put money into the deal, you know, as we were coming into it. I bet you I lost close to $300,000 on that deal and then another 70000 to the SBA. And I bet my partners, did, did they, they lost take, about 100000 They take possession of the assets and stuff like that? Or? Oh, yeah. Property was gone. Totally, you know somebody else bought it for pennies on the dollar, condominiumized it, still a beautiful building. I drive past it all the time and give it the middle finger, right? But it was- <laughs> Just a reminder. I mean, <laughs> right, but I mean, the hardest part really in all of that, I think, I mean, money, I think comes and goes and yeah, you make bad investments and you 
you lick your wounds and you move on or hopefully you don't make them again. Or like you say, you learn and you don't do it. But the hardest part for me was the damage it took on my, on the family dynamics. I mean, you know, you have the saying when mama's not happy, nobody's happy, but I think it applies to dad too. And dad was not happy during that time. And I was not a pleasant person to be around. I wasn't sleeping. It affected my job and my performance. I mean, I couldn't give presentations because I'm worried about where, you know, my assets are going. And I, I think that unless you live through a true financial scare like that, where you see everything that you work so hard, just going down the toilet, you can't really empathize with somebody that's going through it. And, and if anything, that was a blessing for me to be able to understand when clients go through those hardships, exactly what it feels like. So how would you summarize the lessons that you learned? Okay. My lessons on this. Don't get involved in a business that you are not willing to put your own time and effort into. Do not expect somebody to do what they've necessarily told you. And that kind of leads into the next one. Be very, very careful about partners. I always tell my clients, don't bring partners into your life if you can avoid it. If you can do something on your own, it's so much easier because you don't have to look out for anybody else. As soon as you bring a partner into your life, you now owe them a, a duty of loyalty and a duty of care. And that's that's a whole different realm of the law that you want to completely avoid. And I always tell clients, if you get involved in a business with a partner, you treat it as seriously as a marriage. And I mean that because 50% of marriages are going to make it, but 100% of the time, a partnership is going to fail. So be very careful about partners. I've also said, look, don't get involved in the business that you're not really passionate about. I wasn't really passionate about this executive office renting thing. I just thought it was going to be a good return and I would sit back and collect a check. I think you should avoid, if you can, trying to getting involved with family. I really do. I mean, I have a lot of family stuff together, my mom and my sister and myself that are really, really close and we work really well together, but I don't think I would get in business with any other family member again. It's too big of a risk. You not only lose the investment, you not only cause the business issues that go along with that, but you lose a family relationship, right? And there's certain, we're all juggling these balls in life and some of the balls are made of glass. And if you drop them, they break. And to me, that's family and family's foremost. And I, I hate that kind of dynamic. So those are some of the things that I've learned. You know, I, my grandpa had this great saying that it's always you know, the most important thing is the, the return of your investment rather than the return on your investment. And I think I lost track of that, chasing the, the almighty interest. So I wrote down a lot of things here, and I have some lessons that I learned from your story. Maybe I'll summarize some of them. The first one is there's that great book by Simon Sinek called Start With Why. And it talks about, like, what, what's your why? You just, you just actually did it a little differently. You said, what's the client's why? And that is, you know, a great thing for all of us to think about because it's not just what's your why. You know, yeah, we want to come up with a great why and we want the clients to get on board with that why. But if you pay attention to your client's why, then you really, really are making a difference. The second thing that I, that I wrote down is stay away from sexy money-making opportunities. You know, like when people come to you with things, I always say to people, one rule that I try to tell people is just, just follow this one rule and you'll probably, you'll probably save yourself a lot. Never invest in anything that someone.
I like it. I tell you, I, I would agree. I, I've never, I've never seen anybody make a whole bunch of money on one of these deals unless they're one of the insiders, right? I've seen them make a whole bunch of money on it. So if somebody's bringing now you go, Andrew, how am I supposed to find? Well, that's the whole point. It's your job to try to figure out what I want to do and where I can make an impact and then do your research. on it. So the next thing is sales and marketing is hard and, you know, Business starts with revenue. Without revenue, you'll never have profit. And most people just think that revenue comes, but it doesn't. It's extremely hard. You can go to school and study finance, as I did. Finance is easy compared to driving revenue. And that's a lesson that I know and I've learned, but you reinforce. And also, another thing I wrote down is something that I I say in one of my books is that you know, you, first of all, you've got to figure out how to, to create wealth in your life. You've got to make sure that your incoming is much higher than your outgoing. Now, whether that's cash flow in a business or whether that's a salary you're getting every month versus what you spend. So the first way that you can create wealth is to significantly reduce your costs. However, no one gets rich cutting costs. Because it has a limit. You can only go so far. And then you're back to revenue. And you're thinking, holy crap, you know, I've cut down everything I possibly can, but we're still losing. It's back to revenue. And the other thing I wrote down is, you know, beware of outward appearances. Everybody is putting up, you know, why do people put on suits? To make an outward appearance. You know, and everybody. I wore a suit every day of my life for 15 yeah. years, and I, I don't wear we it make, unless I go to court anymore. Yeah, we make an outward appearance. Now, hopefully, Absolutely. there's congruence between what we're projecting to the world and what's inside. But come on, look at it. That's look getting it. less and less. I mean, Instagram and Facebook. I mean, come on. It was, yeah. Everybody's on the beach, hand in hand, and everything. You know, it's hunky dory. And I can tell you personally, after representing thousands of clients over 20 years that that is not the case. There is usually stuff going on behind closed doors. So yeah. no, I'm with you that, the, that this idea of, of we're going to portray everything out there to the rest of the world in a different light than who we really are. Right. What do yeah. they, what do they say? I wish I was the person my dog thinks I am. Right. <laughs> okay. That's a good one. The other thing that I was thinking about is a saying that my counselor, one of my great counselors when I was in drug rehab, basically, and he was episode number eight of this podcast. Now we're at about 600. And yeah. Mike Matoni said to me, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides because we see everything that's messed up with ourselves. And when we look at the appearances out there, we see that everybody's got it together, but they don't. And I'd say after you know decades on this earth, I've come to a conclusion that everybody's messed up. Everybody's messed well, up. Absolutely. Nobody knows what the hell they're doing. We're just exactly. all winging it. And I took, this, uh, I took this mental age test, this like online thing that my wife sends me. Apparently, I'm 19 years old. That's, what I, that's my mental adulthood, right? I'm 19 years old. So I, that's great. I get to identify as a 19-year-old. Wonderful for me, right? <laughs> I don't want to grow up, though. Who wants to grow up? Yeah. Well, the outward appearances thing, and as you say about Facebook and Instagram and the things that we see, 
actually, we don't have to go to the metaverse. We are in it already. And that is the projection of people's image on social media is projecting a metaverse type of image that they create and construct as they want it to be. I mean, I put up the best picture I put up on, you know, that I have on Instagram or whatever, like, the, oh, this is a good one. Okay, here, I took a bunch of pictures this weekend, but this is the best, you know? That's what we're, we're well, naturally going to put and up. And then I go one step further, I edit it, right? Yeah, I, I, make, I make the sunset look brighter and hey, do the contrast. Get rid of the wrinkles. Absolutely. There's two last things that I took away, and that is the cost of energy, the cost that the consumption of your personal energy, when you get caught up into a worst investment type of situation, the cost of the energy that you're, you're having to allocate to that thing is massively destructive in your life, whether that's keeping you up at night, whether it's you're not able to focus, you know, all the emotions that go with it. And so really you've got to try to get out of, you've got to try not to get into these types of situations. And when you feel that drain in energy, you know, you've got to say, and I like, you know, many years ago, someone told me, halt, never get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. But when you see these things building, you've got to try to get out. You've got to try to go for a resolution because you only have a certain amount of energy. And if you destroy it through something like that, and the world will suck that energy out of you. They don't care. And so oh, yeah. protect your energy. And my final thing is empathy. And last, I want to wrap this up by just saying that the whole point of my podcast is authenticity and empathy. You know, you use that word and I'm, I'm using it here by saying that when you've been through a really horrific experience, as we all have, and you've shared it, You've been open about it. You're the type of person I want to work with. Anything you would add to my summary that I took away from what you said? No, I like it. I, you know, you see a lot of angles that, that I don't necessarily, or I, I wasn't perceiving, but I, I totally agree with everything that you say. Yeah. I, we're all, we're all just doing the best we can. And I, I do believe that, but why do people do better than some? And I, I think that it's because of, of living a purposeful life, being in whatever you decide that you're going to do, right? Be purposeful in it. Nobody's going to do it for you. And yeah, and, and then, you know, some of the generational shifts now and how, how various generations are looking at that issue and, and feelings of entitlement and, you know, what is true equality? Is that equality of opportunity? Is it quality of outcome? Right. How that's all changing in terms of how previous generations looked at that. And how do you kind of battle against those changing things, those changes in thought? But anyway, yeah, we're getting well, I would say now. that one of the reasons why people why people are successful, and I would say particularly my podcast listeners, is because they apply risk management principles. Because I'm telling you, if you don't, you know, if you don't apply basic risk management principles that our parents teach us or society teaches us, you're going to expose yourself to risks that you could have avoided. And that's just like in investing. If you take on, if you go out and buy one stock and one stock only, you have taken on a, a high level of risk that you could have diversified and the world doesn't reward you 
for taking on that risk. There is no additional compensation for that. So reduction in risk is such an underrated thing, whether that's walking along the street, whether that's driving your car, whether that's starting relationships, friendships, businesses, you should be thinking about how do I apply basic principles to make sure I reduce my risks. Now, so now, well, I'm on, I want to say I'm kindred spirits with you on that one as well. In fact, that's another one of our chapters in our book, which is entrusted families preserve and protect wealth yeah. without question. So, no, I'm 100% in line with you on that one. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned about the shifting society. And one of the revelations I've had is that, you know, first of all, I've realized that most people don't know what they're talking about. And <laughs> most people have not done a considerable amount of research about what they're talking about. What are the implications if we went this direction? A great example is Germany. I mean, Germany is, is absolutely screwed because they went green. And it turns out after 10 years of going green, it was not going to be enough to support the energy needs of the country. And that was like a wake-up call for me. And then the second thing that I've learned is that there is a, I would say, I would call it a political strategy or maybe just a strategy that some people try to get what they want through chaos and confusion. And if you can deliver a lot of chaos and confusion to people, like, wait, 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 what does that word mean now? What am I supposed to say now? How does this, okay, yeah, everybody can do anything they want and I'm okay. You know, like all of these things about what words mean, what things mean, if you can just cause a lot of chaos and confusion in people's heads, then you can disorient them and they can get lost. And so part of risk management to me is stop, stop. When something's confusing, chaotic, doesn't seem to make sense and stuff, stop because someone may be purposely doing that. And so, you know, risk management can go across a lot of lines, but one of the biggest risk management is how do we protect our mind from not being overwhelmed by whatever societies and advertisers and politicians and political movements want, you know, from our mind. And I'm not going to give it. It's increasingly difficult too, right? To do that. But yeah. no, I, no, I, I mean, interesting, really interesting. Yeah. Thailand's a very nice place when I see the world <laughs> going through its turmoil. So based on what you Never learned from been. this story and what you continue to learn, what one action, let's go back in time. These guys come to you and say, oh, we got this great opportunity, right? What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, I mean, the obvious answer, right, is you say no. I mean, the Nancy Reagan, just say no. But I, um, I, I'll tell you this. I would say no to that exact same scenario at this point in time, knowing what I know now. And, and you could do it for a number of different reasons. I could have blamed it on a couple of things at that point in time. I could have said I don't have the finances available to do something like that you know, play the poverty ticket instead. I'm using, you know, my ego is no, I can, I can come up with the money and be a big player in this. So I would, again, proceed with caution. I would totally have turned it down if it were presented to me today. I've got an idea. (laughs) Hold on. I've taken the book, start with why. And I think I've got a new, I've got a new title for a book about your experience. 
Start with no. <laughs> I like so, it. I like it. Start with no. Yeah, no. Actually, 85% of businesses fail within the first five years. So I think I'll start with no. Yeah. So I, I'm with you. And that's how I, I truly feel that way. The, the investments that I make right now in terms of where the vast majority of my disposable income goes, it's not going to, it goes to books that we're writing. We have software we're developing to deal with all of the stuff that we're extremely passionate about. And so I, you know, I, I have every intention of saying no to, you know, great ideas. I mean, Utah, if you may not be aware of this, but Utah is the, the fraud capital of the United States. I mean, the, the more Ponzi schemes are in Utah or have been in Utah than any other state. And yeah, it's crazy. And it's because we live in this a fairly patriarchal society. You know, we've, we've got a fairly strong religious presence here within Utah and everybody trusts each other, right? right. If your neighbor is a member of your same church or whatever, you're going to trust them and, and it really has worked to their detriment. So no, I'm a big fan of just saying no. Got it. Start with no. What is a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Again, I think if they want to learn kind of more about how this gets deeper into the family dynamics, the book would be a great resource. Riveted, which is the second book, is is actually more enjoyable. By the way, they're both on Audible. First right. one I read, so you have to listen to my horrible voice, but I have a client of mine that's an Emmy Award winning voice actress, and she read the second one. And that's really, that's a cool book because it goes through each of those 44 values and it tells a story of a historical figure that exemplified one of those values. And we tried to use people that were kind of out of the norm. So I think those are great resources to kind of the deeper the discussion within the family about who they are, what they believe, what are they really trying to pass on beyond the finances. Great. Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? So our number one, my number one goal, let's put it that way. I, um, as I mentioned, we're really developing this whole process for families to go through. We've now had 2000 people go through our entrusted process. We're putting some, you know, a lot of money into software to be able to do some online things instead of having it to be so personal within clients. Cause so many people want to have this discussion and our our goal here, and we've got some, I mean, we already have about six, five or six really good relationships, but I hope 12 months from now, I can say to you that we have created, in essence, a company in and of itself that is just doing this. It's not a complimentary to our legal practice, but it's a company that is really concentrating on, on families and businesses and groups and teams getting real clear about what they're ultimately trying to accomplish, what their values are. I'd love to make an impact on that, that wealth transfer, that $50 trillion tsunami. So it isn't so unharnessed that there is some direction to it. Beautiful. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet joined the Become a Better Investor community, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your spot. As we conclude, Andrew, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever <laughs> into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, no grand ideas. I just really appreciate the opportunity to come on and, 
you know, you guys want to hear me talk. Usually my wife pays me to not talk, so I'm happy to do it. We'll take it. We got a lot from it. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help one million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.